I'm now in the northwest at Lancaster train station. It's wet. Typically, it's pouring down, and I'm on my way to meet Professor Andrew Sayer, who's a social scientist working at Lancaster University. Andrew, so far, I've had a chance to talk to a natural scientist, a biologist, about uh, the scientific method. And I've also talked to a social scientist who studies natural scientists. Now, in the past, you've worked as a social scientist in geography, in sociology, and in political economy. What do you think science is for? Well, I think science, especially social science, has quite a modest purpose, which is quite simply to improve the self-understanding of society. And that's modest in comparison with many answers which many people would give. It doesn't involve grandiose claims to be discovering laws of social behaviour or making grand predictions. It's simply about trying to improve society's self-understanding. But uh, there is a problem with this word science, actually. You've got two different kinds of meanings, two sets of meanings. And on the one hand, one set of meanings concerns things like the virtues of scientific activity, being rigorous in opening your work to public inspection, being meticulous, careful, self-reflexive, being critical of one's own work and the work of others, and being systematic. But the trouble is there's another set of meanings to do with science which are related to natural science because people inevitably think of physics and chemistry and such like when you say science. And the trouble is you are expected to endorse the methods of the natural sciences as if they were okay for applying to the social sciences. I mean, for example, to put it crudely, chemists don't interview molecules because it wouldn't make sense to. It wouldn't be appropriate. But by the same token, it's not necessarily appropriate to use the methods of physics or chemistry for analysing, say, a conversation. So the whole question of what is appropriate for the kind of subject matter is absolutely crucial. And so often that is just cut out of discussions of science. Could you suggest one example where social scientists have taken their ideas or views too seriously? Two or three decades ago, behaviourism was popular in many social sciences, and this is the view that one can explain human behaviour by treating it just as basically a set of responses to a set of physical stimuli. And so a conversation would consist of stimuli and responses. And one didn't have to understand the meanings of the words, one just had to look for correlations in the associations between one word, which was a stimulus, and another word, which was a response. And that was wholly inappropriate for understanding human behaviour and social phenomena. What kind of views of the construction of knowledge dominate the social sciences? I think it's possible to summarise some of the main dimensions here by reference to a, a key question which was posed 20 or 30 years ago, which is to do with the crisis of empiricism. Now, in social science, empiricism is taken to involve a naive view of observation, empirical study, the idea that one can study empirically, one can observe things in a way which isn't affected by theory, a way which is independent of theory. And empiricists used to assume the possibility of theory-neutral observations. Now, that idea has been hammered, and I don't think anyone seriously believes that these days, at least not in philosophy. I think it's generally accepted 
that all observation is theory-laden, that is, it's mediated in various ways by ways of seeing, conceptual schema, theories. There's no neutral way of observing the world. The question is, what do you do about that? Well, I think there have been many problematic responses to that question, and most of these involve a certain kind of idealism where people assume that because observation is not neutral, because it's theory-laden, it's actually determined by people's theories, as if what existed, what we could observe, was determined by our theories. So, for example, there are people who might be called conventionalists who believe that truth is just a matter of convention, that whatever claims are made about the world amounts to a certain conventional way of understanding it, not a truthful claim about how the world actually is. Maybe I can give an example of this, of a a theory in social science which was put forward. It was then tested empirically. People observed what was going on, and the way they observed was theory-laden. Now, this is a theory concerning women's role in the labour market. And there was a theory put forward in the 70s which got labelled the Reserve Army Theory of Labour, which is borrowed and adapted from Marx. And the idea is that during a a boom period, women would be drawn into the labour market. All the men had been used up, as it were. The unemployment had fallen for men. So women would be drawn into the labour market. But when there was a crisis, a recession, they would be expelled from the labour market. And that was their role. Well, people looked at statistics and trends, patterns of employment of men and women, and okay, they found a few women in that kind of position, but they also showed that the majority of women were in jobs which were pretty permanent. They kept them during the recessions. Now, those observations required theoretical concepts, like labour market, like employment. It's actually quite a controversial matter to decide what constitutes employment and unemployment. So they were making these observations via theories, but they still were able to challenge the theory as well. Not altogether, it wasn't a complete refutation, but then I don't think refutations of theories are usually cut and dried totally. They say that on the whole, women are not in that position. A few are. That's a very typical kind of empirical test. So you think it's possible to be an empirical researcher without being an empiricist? Exactly. In fact, confusing empiricism with empirical research is what I call a real howler. One can study the world empirically and still be conscious, or try to be conscious, of the theoretical frameworks, the conceptual schema, the ways of seeing that you're using. Whereas empiricism isn't conscious of that. It doesn't think it has to be. It doesn't think there's a problem. So there is a difference. And so going into empirical research does not necessarily mean abandoning theory and failing to be self-conscious about it. On the contrary, it requires you to be self-conscious about the theory. Could you say what you think of the main approaches to social science? I think a lot of people in social science see the main method they use to be the search for regularities. And this has something to do with emulating natural science because it's thought, I think, at least implicitly perhaps, that the regularities which we find will eventually be firmed up into laws of human behaviour. And I think the search for regularities is grossly overvalued as a method in social science. And maybe I can give you an example Let's take something which is quite familiar and which is very patterned in a a very familiar, regular kind of way. 
which is job segregation, the kinds of jobs which men get, the kinds of jobs which women get. You know how in an organisation, the higher up in the organisation you go, the more men there are and the fewer women. And how looking across different kinds of jobs, different kinds of sectors, you find in some sectors like manufacturing, very few women, and other sectors like public service, lots of women. Well, there's some regularities there, all right. So you look at management and you find that there's a regular association between women and personnel management, but very few women in financial management. Okay, these regularities are interesting, but they don't provide explanations in themselves. Rather, they tell us some of the things which might be worth explaining. So how do you explain, if not just by finding regularities? Then what you've got to look for is causes, causal mechanisms, if you like. And in something like job segregation, you'd obviously be looking at the mechanism of recruitment. There are other mechanisms as well. The selection mechanism is, is one, at least. And you try to find why employers sort out one kind of worker rather than another. Which brings me on to another kind of method that you'd have to use here, which is what is generally called interpretive understanding. One of the main explanations of job segregation on a gender basis is to do with concepts of masculinity and femininity in society. What do they mean? And... Here you're involved in a kind of understanding which is quite unlike that used in natural science. It's more like understanding what a book is all about. When you read a book, you don't need to know how the words got on the page, how they were printed. You need to understand what the words mean. And likewise with masculinity and femininity, you need to know what they mean. And in these particular cases, these are incredibly complex, unstable, often inconsistent concepts. But... They inform what people do. They are often bound up in the reasons which people give for deciding to do one thing rather than another. I'm arguing that you need several approaches, that regularities, the search for regularities, isn't going to get you very far. It's not going to get you anywhere at all if you're trying to understand something unique, like the building and the the pulling down of the Berlin Wall. There's no regularities there, but something caused it. A whole set of things caused it. You need causal explanation as well, which is about discovering mechanisms or reasons for change. And you need interpretive understanding, because what people do is informed by that understanding. What do you think about the role of values in social science? Do you believe that we should keep them out or allow them in? Values are bound to be particularly important in social science, much more so than in natural science. There is a danger that we can all find ourselves wanting to believe certain things because they fit with our worldview, our value system. So a left-wing person who doesn't like capitalism is very ready to believe that unemployment is really high. And a right-wing person who thinks that capitalism is good is very likely to want to find statistics which show that unemployment is in fact very low or it's voluntary or something like that. Many of our descriptions of social life are inherently value if you like, When we use words like intelligence and development or oppression, exploitation, abuse, then they are simultaneously descriptive and evaluative. But what is the evaluative content of those terms? Sometimes it's seen as just as a form of contamination that you could get rid of. We replace those value-laden words with some neutral words. But you could be describing something awful like child abuse, You try to find a neutral way of describing it, but 
you still think it's terrible. It doesn't actually necessarily alter the way we think about it. We still have values about it. There's no point in denying that. But also, the values are sometimes important for the description. When I say someone's cruel, I'm not just saying I disapprove of them. I'm actually describing what they're like. I think often the view of values in social science is a hopelessly inadequate one in that it's what philosophers call the boo-hooray theory of values. If I say torture is bad, all that means is torture boo. If I say democracy is good, all that means is democracy hooray. As if we don't have reasons for believing that torture is bad and democracy is good. So, you know, people often ask about the problem of values in science. Well, it's a good idea to turn that on its head and say, what about science in values? Are values beyond the scope of reason? Well, actually, in practice, we do argue about our values. We give reasons for saying something's good or better or worse. So if all social science is value-laden, what shall we do about this? Well, remember that it, it can be a problem, but not necessarily. We have to be on the watch out for it. We have to be careful. We have to try and criticise, reflect upon our values, because the values actually can steer us in certain directions, good or bad. And I think it's often a, a useful thing to try and suspend certain values or invert them. You may hate a particular kind of political ideology. Well, try imagining actually favouring that, arguing from that point of view. That may actually enable you to see things which you didn't see before. So what I'm saying is that one shouldn't go into social science thinking, well, yes, it's value-laden and I'm a neoliberal or I'm a socialist or something like that and I'm going to try and uh, defend those kinds of views, come what may. I'm on the side of this particular group and I'm going to defend them, use my social science to bolster their case. One shouldn't do that. You know, right or wrong, I'm on the side of this group. What you should do is actually take a distance from their values and try to do the same for your own values, not suspending them forever or completely, but just occasionally trying to think, what would it be like to question this? So we have to try to think critically about our values. They are things we can reason about, and our research should allow the possibility of results which don't fit comfortably with our value systems. So you don't see values as necessarily being a problem then? No. From the point of view of the researcher, sometimes their value positions, morally and politically, can be an advantage. But I want to say, though, there's no guarantee that having a value position will help you or prevent you discovering or coming up with a good explanation of something. It can do either. So I want to correct the purely negative view, but I don't want to flip over into a purely positive view. But are they always a problem? Well, there's a famous example which philosophers like Charles Taylor have given of how to describe the Holocaust. And if you take two descriptions, millions of people were exterminated, that's one description. Millions of people died, much more neutral description. It's not laden with the value implications of extermination. But which tells you more about what happened? Extermination tells you something about how they died, not accidentally, not just one by one, but systematically. So the more value-laden account there is actually the more descriptively informative one. And the values aren't necessarily a problem. 
So far, you've told us about how observations are linked to ideas, linked to our imagination. But is there also potentially a problem in assuming that uh, the world is just socially constructed? Yes, there is. I mean, at one level, yes, of course, knowledge is socially constructed. Researchers make constructions of the world that they observe in the sense of construing it in certain ways, and actors in everyday life construct things like institutions, like the Open University. But the Open University is someone else's construction. If I were a social scientist studying it, okay, I construe it in a certain way, but it's not my construction. It exists independently of me. It would exist if I was run over by a bus tomorrow. It would continue to exist. So... Yes, I do make constructions of it, but that isn't to say that it is my construction. And it's important to remember that difference. Earlier, I highlighted the way in which you had personally moved between disciplines in the social sciences, from geography to sociology, for instance. Do you think that the future of the social sciences is a disciplinary one or an interdisciplinary one? I think that individual disciplines all have good sociological questions about the problem of social order. How is it that society hangs together in a relatively ordered way? That's a good question. But to answer it, in any concrete instance, you need to go beyond that discipline. For example, social order is influenced by the workings of markets. And to understand how they produce social order, you've got to understand some economic theory. So you follow processes wherever they lead. You follow arguments wherever they lead. And if you happen to cross a disciplinary boundary, then good, don't worry about it. I'm not advocating a kind of dilettante position here, though, where you just float about and land anywhere you like. You do have to draw upon all the pre-existing thought in that area if you're going to stand a chance of saying anything worthwhile. But you usually have to become post-disciplinary to understand concrete objects adequately. That's stronger than interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary implies that you bring a bit of economics together with a bit of sociology, with a bit of political science, and so on. Post-disciplinary, you forget about the very distinctions. And actually, the founders of social science were already post-disciplinary or pre-disciplinary, of course. As you can see, one challenge, or perhaps one question, leads to another in social science. That's the joy of being a social scientist. Or at least you're never out of a job. As soon as you think you've addressed one question, a whole series of new questions spring to mind. It's a kind of never-ending story. Now, just for fun, spend five minutes thinking about a challenge you would like to see carried out. What questions would you say are important? How would you constrain your practice as a social scientist? Remember, limiting the scope of an investigation is vital if you are to get it all done. You might be surprised where this leads you.